Hi, welcome to today's message, The Beauty of a Life Spent Serving, based on John 12, 20-33, or section, The Purpose of Playing in an Empty Stadium. Throughout life, we're always wrestling with this question of purpose. Why are we doing what we're doing? Is it really worth the expense, the energy we devote to it? What are we hoping to gain by it? In John 12, we get a glimpse of why Jesus did what he did, what was motivating him back of it all, and how he invites us to sample a similar approach in life for lasting, worthy outcomes. In our free time, we tend to recreate for various reasons, health, enjoyment, relaxation, and so forth. When I was younger, a popular local recreational sport was baseball. My beginnings in organized sports were humble. As an older child, I played ball for the team based in Russelldale, a, a little hamlet on Highway 23, a few kilometers from our home farm. We were not very good at playing baseball. In fact, there was one season where we didn't win a single game all season. must have been disappointing for our coach, Bob Bolts, who ran a nearby farm equipment dealership. Nevertheless, he kept on coaching and practicing with us and encouraging us. By the time I graduated from high school, things had changed. Roy's United Church had closed when I was 12, yet the local ball team in the neighborhood called itself Roy's Boys. The caliber of our play improved quite a bit. We actually put up some good competition. I have fond memories of the ballpark on sultry summer nights at Cromarty. The bleachers filled up with local folk out for a night's entertainment, cheering on their respective teams. The bright floodlights, the crack of the ball hitting the bat, the dashing about the field trying to score a run or get a double play with two out. Each player got their turn at a potential moment of glory. That electric moment filled with tension as the bat blasted from the pitcher's hand and the batter's skills were taxed trying to belt it out over the fence. Automatic home run. What are your favorite memories of playing local sports? Or was there some activity at which you shone? Did you have any moments of glory? Like hitting a homer with bases loaded. In high school, those who progressed to win at regional events like Wasso were treated with almost reverence because of their star accomplishment. Or you had your homecoming king and queen, very honored. On the drama team, we had our time in the spotlight putting on plays for the community like Bye Bye Birdie or Tea House of the August Moon. It was terrifying to be up there on stage in front of all those people, afraid your brain would freeze and you'd forget your next line. Yet it was also exhilarating, a thrill when it came off right and the gym was filled with applause. The COVID crisis is changing things for some of our usual areas of stardom. The news this week featured some discussion about what the major leagues are planning to do for this year's baseball season. It will be very strange if players end up playing their games before an empty stadium. There's talk of the players not sitting in the dugout even, but observing physical distancing by sitting over six feet apart in the empty seats of the stands. It just won't be the same without the roar of the crowd, the, the cheers at good hits and plays, the rumble of disapproval at a questionable call. Where's the glory in it all if there's no spectators to remark upon it? Will it not seem just like your typical neighborhood ball game? Not much different than a pickup game in a sandlot? What the COVID crisis does for Major League Baseball, maybe it can be doing for the rest of us in our respective spheres of activity. It sure is different not going through the normal routine of going in for work each day. 
kind of offers us a chance to stop and reevaluate just why are we doing what we're doing? What's our end objective? Is there purpose in our existence before life returns to normal and we just step back onto the same old treadmill? Next section, worldview collisions, power, pleasure, or glory. John 12, 20 forward says, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. This represents a bit of a turning point in Jesus' ministry focus. He had previously traveled outside Palestine, Judea and Galilee, into Samaria, the Transjordan on the east side of the Jordan River, even up into the area around Mount Hermon in the north. But these God-fearing Greeks, possibly proselytes or converts to Judaism, represent a field even further away. Jesus had been focusing on ministry to the Jews, Abraham's descendants. The coming of these Greek inquirers sort of represent you and me in a way, those in distant lands who had not yet witnessed Jesus' ministry. Here's a chance for Jesus' ministry to go global, maybe even go viral, as we would say these days. How will he respond? Will he seize the opportunity? In verse 31, Jesus refers to the prince of this world. Maybe here there's an echo of one of the early temptations at the very outset of his ministry. When Jesus was in the wilderness, Satan invited him. Matthew 4, 8, or again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Interestingly, Jesus did not dispute that they were Satan's to offer, but he did reject Satan's terms. He had not come to be a miracle-working Messiah that would win any popularity contest. That's not the purpose for which he had come. Had these Greeks been there and witnessed Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem just previous to this? They seemed to have been in town for the Jewish Passover festival. Perhaps they were attracted by Judaism's monotheism and moral principles, but were a bit put off by its sacrificial requirements, dietary laws, and ritual demands such as circumcision. Judaism had attracted a sizable following in various cities of what were called God-fearers, Religious folk from other backgrounds who nevertheless attended the synagogue services and were inquisitive about the Hebrew scriptures and their promises. It's interesting to speculate just where these seekers were coming from in terms of their approach to life. Two of the largest schools of Hellenistic thought were Stoicism and Epicureanism. The Stoics held that the cosmos is governed by an overarching fatalistic law and we best achieve happiness when we resign ourselves to fate. Their founder, Zeno, had very simple living habits, eating food that didn't require cooking, drinking mostly water, wearing thin clothes, and he was apparently insensible to rain, heat, and pain. Hmm. One gets the sense that he simply tried to tough it out. In ethics, Stoics tried to live according to nature and its laws, including moral virtue and the laws of human society. One can imagine these Greeks finding Jesus' moral teachings appealing to a point, though they would probably be startled by the degree to which Jesus pictured love of neighbor going, for instance, turn the other cheek, walk the second mile, and so on. 
The second most popular school of thought was Epicureanism. The founder Epicurus held that happiness is achieved through pleasure. Well, Epicurus sought tranquility, first of all, through simple living. It perhaps opened the door to what the Apostle Paul characterizes in 1 Corinthians 15.32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Party hearty. YOLO, you only live once, so you might as well live it up. Grab all you can while you can. As our own society wanders more from its biblically informed foundations, we find an increasing number of people living for the moment, living for pleasure, living for the weekend, like Epicureanism. Do you resonate with one of those schools of thought? Do you tend more to tough it out and conform to social rules? or to living it up, pursuing pleasure? What for you have been the clash points in aligning your life with the way of Jesus? After hearing the desire of the Greeks to have a private audience with him, Jesus instead continues teaching his disciples. In just a few short days, he would be dying for what he believed, so he proceeds to lay out for them one more time the governing principles and passion of his life, his own approach to meaningful living. And it's a long way from Epicurean living for pleasure. 12.24 for him. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. While the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Far from grab all you can get while you can, Life seems to be about yielding up your life, according to Jesus, allowing it to be planted so it can flower and produce seeds. Eternal life is obtained by hating one's life in this world, loving God so much that you're willing to let this life go, submit it to his purposes. Be neurotic about guarding your life selfishly, and you'll lose it. This is not just theoretical talk for Jesus. He's keenly aware that within a few short days he would be crucified. He had already predicted this a couple of times to his followers. Soon he will be paying with his life for what he believes. Rather than run away to Greece and spend the rest of his earthly life as an itinerant healer and miracle worker, Jesus is choosing to confront the powers that be in Jerusalem and submit to the full extent of their jealous hatred and torture. The hour of his separation from his heavenly Father and torment on the cross is coming up quickly. 12.27 for it. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Did you notice the purpose clause there? For this very reason I came to this hour. Jesus' purpose in life is to give his life as a ransom, buying back us sinners. Not living for pleasure, not even living for maintaining helpful social customs and mores like the Stoics believed. Jesus lived to glorify his Father. And what that meant in the immediate was going to Gethsemane to become the target bearing the world's sin. Target for the wrath of the very Heavenly Father whose love had entwined him so deeply and profoundly since before the world was made. Exception. What Jesus won, the hour to flower. 
Some people idolize power, the controllers. Others idolize pleasure, the consumers. But this hour Jesus is talking about is neither the hour of power, apologies to Robert Schuller, nor the hour of pleasure, as Epicureans might chase after. Instead, it's his hour to flower. Well, today is the first Sunday of May, after all. Out our front window, I can see beautiful flowers on our forsythia, buds on our magnolia that will later burst into gorgeous array. Daffodils and hyacinths brighten the dark earth winter left behind. Jesus is demonstrating for us what it means to plant our life in a meaningful way, such that it will become a display of beauty, glory even, that honors God who created and designed us to show forth our unique qualities. The cross and empty tomb became locations where Jesus' essence is manifest, what he came to earth for. This passage highlights five effects the coming hour would have regarding our Lord. First, Jesus was glorified. Verse 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, at first it seems odd to think of a cross where criminals were hung to die a painful death lingering sometimes for days as anything at all resembling a thing of beauty. But when you realize that this is the one through whom the world was created, expressing his love for lost sinners by becoming their holy substitute, and that the empty tomb depicts God's power vanquishing the forces of evil, corruption, and death. Packaged together, it's an hour of awesome beauty and glory. Next, Jesus became prolific. Verse 24, If a kernel of wheat dies, it produces many seeds. Jesus became the founder of a major world religion. The Guardian reports, According to 2015 figures, Christians form the biggest religious group by some margin with 2.3 billion adherents, or 31.2% of the total world population of 7.3 billion. Muslims are next at about 24%. And this line of followers has extended down through the centuries and across continents. Discipleship is by its very nature reproductive, as the sixth thing of the way of Jesus reminds us. I am helping someone, and someone is helping me to be a reproducing follower of Jesus. Reproducing. You are continuing this process of producing many seeds. Next, Jesus glorified the Father's name. Verse 28, he asked, Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. Unpacking the wonderfulness of God's character, all his name represents, is rightfully high on God's agenda because the universe is his showcase. It's in coming to appreciate all his goodness and righteousness and loving kindness and truth and beauty that we are blessed and he is deservedly praised. Jesus' obedience helps make God look good, attractive, desirable. Next, Jesus won victory over Satan. Verse 31. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Golgotha is the crucial cosmic battle in God's defeat of the enemy of our souls. Everything since is merely mopping up operations. The universe is not dualistic. The accuser's days are numbered. A lake of fire awaits. Satan's tyranny in our lives is released when we trust in Christ and confess him in our words and actions. As Revelation 12:11 puts it, they overcame him, the accuser, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, 
They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And Jesus became a mounted magnet. Verse 32, referring to his crucifixion. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. This sort of Messiah is an enigmatic puzzle, intriguing. Coming not on a war horse, but a donkey, a beast of burden. Reigning not from a golden throne, but from a rough wooden cross. It's precisely because his power is manifested through his weakness, his pinnedness, that he draws us in. Unlike human emperors and despots that have to throw their weight around to obtain people's cooperation and loyalty. It's this incongruity and contrast to human types of coerced leadership that Paul highlights in 1 Corinthians 1, 22-24. He said, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus crucified draws us to himself because we know we have blown it. We have our weaknesses. We are infected with the same spiritually deadly virus that proved the downfall of Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden. To those who know they need a Savior, Jesus has magnetic appeal, strong but gentle, bleeding but healing, sharing our pain and acquainted with our griefs. Berkeley Cavey, teaching pastor at the Meeting House, remarked how if it were not for Jesus, instead of being a Christian, he'd likely be an atheist or an agnostic. There's too much pain in the world that undermines the concept of a good, loving, all-powerful God. Apart from the uniqueness of Jesus, he understands our pain. Next section, incentives to serve the crucified one. God's power to save us was released by Jesus' obedience and submitting to the pain and alienation of the cross. At first, Jesus called to us to follow him to the cross, to lay down our lives daily is anything but appealing. Verse 25b, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Our consumer lifestyle wants to love life. Who would take the approach of hating your life? But Jesus says that's the only way we'll keep it for eternal life. As incentive, there are some promises in this passage for those who choose to follow the Master. First, we'll produce many seeds. The kernel of wheat that dies produces many seeds, verse 24. Your life will rub off on other lives because the Holy Spirit inside you produces love and gentleness and kindness that can't help but relate positively to other people. Two, your life will endure. We don't want our life to flash by without any lasting impact, to vanish without a trace. Verse 25, the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If you want to hang on to your life, you've got to be prepared to give it away. Think of those in your life who have passed away, but who still bring a warm remembrance in you because of the way they helped you out, took time for you, modeled how to live in a way that made a difference way that reflected the Savior. Third, you'll have fellowship with the Savior. This is the best reason of all by far. Otherwise, we're loving God for his gifts rather than loving the giver. Verse 26a, Jesus promised, Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. 
Jesus promised in John 14 he was going to prepare a place for us. There are many rooms in his Father's house. John 14.3 If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus is the kind of person who, when he was on earth, it was always just constantly amazing to be in his presence. That's what we have to look forward to on the other side of the grave. And last, you'll have fame before God. Yes, you heard me right. Did you know that was possible, incomparably great as God is? He says he will honor Jesus' followers. John 12:26b. Whoever serves me must follow me. My Father will honor the one who serves me. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25. We see a glimmer of what this might look like when the Master praises the good servants who invest wisely what's been entrusted to them. One can probably extrapolate this to get a hint of a picture of how the Father might receive those who followed his Son faithfully. Matthew 25, 21. His Master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your Master's happiness. Last section, Living Grounds for the Lord's Prayer. In closing, here's a piece by an unknown author riffing off the Lord's Prayer and gathering up some of the threads about living with purpose we've seen in today's passage. I cannot say our if I live only for myself. I cannot say father if I do not endeavor each day to act like his child. I cannot say who art in heaven if I am laying up no treasure there. I cannot say, Hallowed be thy name, if I am not striving for holiness. I cannot say, Thy kingdom come, if I am not doing all in my power to hasten that wonderful event. I cannot say, Thy will be done, if I am disobedient to his word. I cannot say, On earth as it is in heaven, if I'll not serve him right here and now. I cannot say, Give us this day our daily bread, if I am dishonest or am seeking things by subterfuge. I cannot say, forgive us our debts, if I harbor a grudge against anyone. I cannot say, lead us not into temptation, if I deliberately place myself in its path. I cannot say, deliver us from evil, if I do not put on the whole armor of God. I cannot say, Thine is the kingdom, if I do not give the king the loyalty due him from a faithful subject. I cannot attribute to him the glory, if I am seeking honor only for myself, and I cannot say forever, if the horizon of my life is bounded completely by time. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus planning his life so that we might uh, have eternal life with you forever. Thank you for the life you give us right now. Thank you for your Holy Spirit equipping us and empowering us to pour out our lives as Jesus did for us. Help us, Lord, to, to love our neighbors, to forgive those who have offended us. Help us to keep your kingdom purposes foremost in our uh, endeavors and help us to live obedient to your way. We thank you, Lord, for these great promises of Jesus, and uh, we want you to be glorified in all we say and do in life. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.